Good morning uh, again. Chapter 9 of Acts is this epic account. Uh, I, I've been, as I've just been living in it over the last uh, week, week and a half, two weeks, somewhere in there, I've made some observations and I want to I share those with you. We're, we're kind of landing the plane on this series called Strong Church, and we have had these Strong Church study guides that in the back of them, they have a, a personal discipleship uh, plan in them that help to walk you through some key questions, like, am I a disciple of Jesus? Would I call myself a disciple of Jesus? Have I been baptized? Am I part of a community? Uh, what does it look like for me to invest my life into a local church? If not this one, then which one? as well as what does it look like uh, for me to be on mission, to be on Jesus' mission to the people around me. So we hope that these have been, uh, we hope they've been helpful to you, these study guides, and we'll interact with it if you've got one. Uh, we'll interact with it towards the end. But I just want to say this on, on Acts. The book of Acts is this, this kind of New Testament book that, that when, you, when, I, when I read it, uh, my vision for what God is doing and seems to be doing uh, in the world, uh, my vision for his kingdom and his power, it really expands my view of who he is and what he's like in the world. And to me, Acts is one of the most inspiring books in the entire Bible. I continue to come back to this book. It's, you'll notice the, the headline of the book is the Acts of the Apostles, but many theologians have, have said, this perhaps should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit because he is the one who shows up dominantly throughout. He's the major, the key player in, uh, in the book of Acts. Uh, if you've not read it in a while, it'd serve you really well to, to read it and to, to live in it, to spend some time in the book of Acts. I think a good way to approach it would be to, to read the whole thing. It's 28 chapters. Read it quickly and kind of broadly read through it, get, a, get an understanding of the narrative arc and what is happening in Acts because it is narrative of how the Holy Spirit um, began to grow and expand the kingdom of Jesus as soon as Jesus went to uh, be with the Father and left the disciples, sent the disciples on their mission. But after just reading through it and getting that narrative arc, come back to it and spend uh, some time, maybe go chapter by chapter and start to notice um, the nuances. So after you get the big picture and the flow, then come back looking for uh, the details, looking at how the church of Jesus Christ begins to unfold in this account. Notice how often you'll see the Holy Spirit in action, animating the different people in the book of Acts. He's moving this narrative forward. And notice the repeating themes that you see over and over and over again in the book of Acts. Things like Gospel proclamation. Just notice how many times they'll get up and say, men of so-and-so and people of so-and-so, we declare to you this. Just notice the contours of how the gospel is proclaimed in Acts. Notice the repetitive acts of generosity. Notice the healing and the miracles of faith in Acts. These signs and wonders that are done among the apostles and, and the disciples. Notice the baptisms, these commands to be baptized. Notice how often churches get their start in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, right out of the gates. Uh, well, Acts chapter 1, there's about 120 disciples. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches a pretty effective sermon. 
after he was filled with the Holy Spirit, so it's the Spirit of God who is speaking and preaching and proclaiming the gospel, 3,000 people in that moment come to believe the gospel. That's just Acts chapter 2. Then you move up to Acts you know, chapter 4, and you, you see like uh, the church is continuing to gather together. Uh, Acts chapter 8, the church begins to spread out into Samaria. Acts chapter 11, Acts chapters 12 and 13. Acts chapter 16 is where we see the Philippian church born, the church in Thessalonica started. Acts chapter 17 and 18 is where we see the church in Ephesus get its start. These are all language. These are all letters. Paul would write these letters to these churches, and we have them in our New Testament. That's where Acts 17 and 18 is where the church, the Corinthian church, get their start. We have two letters in our New Testaments there. One thing that is front and center in the book of Acts is how Jesus's kingdom grows. Where you plant the gospel, churches spring up. Communities of people gathered around the gospel become Churches, where you plant the gospel, disciples multiply, and as disciples multiply, churches start. That's how God has worked throughout history. Here's, here's the big idea this morning. It's kind of like a, um, a bit of a duh statement right at the beginning, but then there's some application right underneath it uh, for you to ask questions of yourself. Here's the big idea this morning. Healthy disciples multiply because the kingdom of God is always expanding in the world. Healthy disciples seek to make other disciples because the kingdom of God throughout history is always expanding. So ask yourself some questions. Ask yourself, how will I engage in Jesus's Mission, how will I engage in discipleship? How will I engage in disciple-making? Where am I in the spectrum of my own life? What do I, do I have something to offer other people? But beyond that, how will I engage in church planting? How will I engage in the multiplying of other healthy churches? I mentioned uh, mentioned in an email this last week um, that I've been getting a question lately that's been coming with, I don't know why, but it's been coming frequently um, lately, for some reason, by people that I don't think are talking about the question. They're just asking me the question as we're having conversations. And the question is, how big do you, Jared, how big do you want all of Life Church to get? How big? Like, how many people do you envision this church being? Th- that's not really a question that I've spent a lot of time on uh, over the years. There's not like a blueprint or a document or something with my handwriting and my prayer journals, like, Lord, just give us a church of this many people. That's not really been what's been in my sights. But my hope when it comes to church size is that we would grow large enough to reproduce over and over and over again. The reproduction piece has really been the heartbeat of what I've what, what you'll find in my prayer journals and what you'll find in different things that I've written over the years, just, just processing some of these questions. Now think of a tree that's producing seedlings. Think of a tree that's producing tree starts. Or think of uh, a family that is producing generations of family members. This summer, while I'm on sabbatical, just full disclosure, this is one of the things that I'm going to be contending before the Lord, my own soul, for and, and, and with. I'm going to be asking him for, I have already for, for a number of years, but it, it seems to have been turning up in my soul and my spirit over the last six months or so. Um, 
asking him for favor, asking him for grace, asking him for resources in our disciple-making efforts so that we have an abundance of new and mature disciples who are on Jesus' mission together, and hear this, lunging at the opportunities that Jesus presents us to make disciples in our spheres of influence. Church size? I don't know. A few hundred? We're right around 250, 260 that would call themselves a part of all of life right now. 300, 400, 500, I don't know. Not like uh, when it comes to, you know, the megaplex and and all the ballparks and all the stuff like that, that's not our role. That's probably not our niche at all. But what I want to do is make disciples, plant new churches, and then partner with those churches to plant more churches. Whatever the Lord needs for that to happen, let's go. To me, personally, that's worth giving my life for. And at 45, 44 years old, that is like where I'm aiming my life for the rest of my days, to see healthy disciples multiplied. This, is, uh, this was written in, um, I think it was Trinity Evangelical Seminary in the 1970s. Somebody wrote this in the school paper. It was like a little, um, just a, a, a slight poem. It goes like this. If you want to grow something to last a season, plant flowers. If you want to grow something to last a lifetime, plant trees. If you want to grow something to last throughout eternity, plant the gospel. And where the gospel is planted, disciples will be made. And where disciples are made, new churches will exist. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to explore Acts chapter 9 together. Uh, I want us to start working some of this into our imaginations. Like for you, maybe this is a brand new idea to you. I want to just ask, like, Spirit of God, would you help to give us a collective vision for disciple-making here? in this community, working this into our hopes, our imaginations, and certainly working some of this into our prayers. I've got um, six, really five strong observations, and then a sixth observation from Acts chapter 9. Oftentimes when we study Acts chapter 9, or when we think about Acts chapter 9, it's all about the Apostle Paul's conversion, which is a major portion of Acts chapter 9. But I'm going to start to kind of work around the scenes of Paul's life and try to help us Um, get a vision or maybe some more clarity for just how God is working around uh, the Apostle Paul's life and in the church at that time. So here is my first point this morning. Disciples multiply because Jesus is always working. Disciples multiply because Jesus is always working. So maybe you're like me on this. Sometimes when I haven't left town for a while, I start to get a little bit myopic in my view of my life and the community, and I forget that there are mega cities out there with mega millions of people just hustling and bustling and doing all of the things. If you're a homebody and you haven't left the house in a couple of days, you forget that there's a whole city beyond your front door. We we tend to really hone in, and so in a similar way, it can be easy to discount the scope of Jesus's work based on the content of what he seems to be up to in my life, in my little sandbox, in my world. But honestly, like, if we're myopic in our view of what the Spirit of God is doing in his world through Jesus Christ, it can really, really, really be a faith killer. 
This can decimate our faith. I want to ask this. Throughout your life, have you, have you sensed Jesus speaking to you and changing you? Have you had encounters with the real Jesus where he is whispering to your soul, hey, go do this, hey, say that, hey, give this, hey, ask about this, hey, I think you need to be pursuing this, repenting of this. Have you had opportunities in your life where you sense that the Spirit of God has been speaking to your soul, your spirit? Jesus is consistently speaking to me. He's consistently whispering those kinds of things to me all the time. And the question isn't really, is Jesus speaking through his spirit? The question is, am I listening? The question is, am I responding? He's leading us. He's guiding us through his word, through his church, through his spirit. And if he's doing this for me, he must be doing this for you. He must be doing this for us. And if he's doing this for me and for us, then he must be doing this for them too, right? If there are two billion disciples of Jesus in the world, those are kind of the numbers of people who would claim to, to follow Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God must be speaking to them and seeking to work through them. Can we get our eyes up? our eyes up on what the Spirit of God is doing in his world and what he wants to do in his world. Even if we cannot see Jesus working in the moment, working in the stuff of our everyday life, or maybe it's hard for us, we, don't feel, we feel like he's gone silent on us, it would be disastrous to conclude that he has gone silent, that he's stopped talking, that he's stopped leading, that he's stopped speaking to his people. So turn in your Bibles to, or on your apps, if you would, turn to Acts chapter 9. Uh, I want us to slow ourselves. Jason read this. Thank you, Jason, for reading this to us this morning. You did a great job just taking us into the story. If we'll slow ourselves enough to just consider the timelines here, to consider the hours, to consider the process, um, to let our imagination see the contours, to let our imagination see the details of what is going on we will get a glimpse of just how at work the Spirit of God really is. This is one snapshot that changed the world. Verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, who's the Lord? It's Jesus. He goes to the high priest in Jerusalem and asks them for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, notice the capitalization of way there. This is what the early Christians were called. This is what they were a part of. It was called the way before they were called Christians. Men or women, doesn't matter. He, might, he wants to bring them bound or arrested to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approaches Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shines around him. He's the one breathing out murderous threats. And he falls to the ground, and he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, that's his Hebrew name, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? Lord, somebody is on the scene far more influential and authoritative than he is. And this voice answers and says, I am Jesus. Enter, uh, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. By persecuting the people of God, Paul is persecuting Jesus himself. Jesus instructs him. He says, rise, enter the city. You're going to be told what you're, you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless and hearing the voice but seeing no one. 
Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. He was blind. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This is just one snapshot in God's world, in God's redemptive story, just one. It's a big one. It's changed our world in some profound ways, but just one snapshot. So I want to take us back to that question. If the Spirit of God is changing me and the Spirit of God is changing you too from within, then that means he's changing all kinds of people. He's changing moral people. He's changing grandmas. He's changing kids. He's changing bosses. He's changing middle schoolers and high schoolers. He's changing moms and dads, grandfathers. He's changing transgender people. He's changing middle managers. He's transforming gay people. He's transforming Republicans. He's transforming Democrats. He's transforming pastors. He's transforming abusers. He's transforming school teachers. He's transforming politicians. He's transforming greedy people. And the list goes on and on and on. The kind of people that King Jesus is speaking to in his world. Wherever any of these people land on your list of good or bad, Jesus does not judge them based on their outward appearances, but on the condition of their hearts and specifically with what they do with him. That's what these people are being judged upon. What do they do with him? Do they surrender to him? Truly. Sometimes Jesus confronts radically. Sometimes Jesus confronts subtly and more gently. But he always forces people to deal with his identity. The question is, is he a mere teacher or is he Lord? Is he worthy of repentance or am I going to disregard him? Just in this room alone, right here with us, we have a variety of experiences among us, our own stories of who we are, who we have been, who we're becoming. And what I want us to think carefully about is this. Jesus is always at work in his world, whether or not you and I see it. And because Jesus is always working to expand his kingdom and to exercise his lordship, his kingdom then is always expanding. It's always taking ground. This is why in his promise to Peter, he would say, Peter, upon you, this rock, I will your confession and who you are, the apostles and all of the disciples that you will make, upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why? Because the, the church is on offense, not defense. The church is pounding at the gates of hell. The church of Jesus Christ is pushing back the darkness in the world. Sometimes it's just merely restraining it. Sometimes it looks like it's being overcome. But in the scope of history, Jesus' kingdom is always on the march and the move. The real Jesus is with his people and no one is outside of his grip or his influence. No one. We have got to hold on to our steadfast belief that Jesus is always at work and cultivate from within these eyes and these hearts that are willing to see where he is at work and willing to join him where he is at work. Jesus is always at work in his world. Here's a second observation out of verse 15. Disciples multiply because Jesus rescues the unlikely ones. 
Jesus rescues the unlikely ones. If you've been in church for a while, it's really tempting to think that disciples multiply because there are a lot of decent people out there who are just right on the edge of faith and just really open to Jesus and are just about to come into the kingdom and put their faith in Christ. But what about the ones who seem light years away? What about the ones who snicker at you because of your relationship with Jesus? What about the people who would, if they had the opportunity, kill you, take your life because of your testimony about who Jesus is? These are the ones that I personally tend to dismiss. The ones who are oppositional, the ones who seem like they've got no room in their worldview for Jesus. I I knee-jerk. Where I immediately go is canceling them in my head and in my heart. That's just where, like, I just... I go there. And then my work is like bringing it back. Okay, Jesus, I know that you work in your world. For goodness sake, I was selling drugs when Jesus found me. I didn't deserve him. I deserved hell. And I still deserve hell. But what I get is his mercy. That's what the people of God have received, the mercy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is in the, he, he's in the surprising, I think, in some ways, business of turnarounds, of rehab. Rehabbing both irreligious people and religious people. Rehabbing the people who say, nah, I don't need him, and the people who say, of course I've got him. Look at my life. Look at how good I am. Look at how noble I am. You and I, when we, when we do that, whether we're religious or irreligious in our approach, we're flat out wrong and we're opposing God when we knee-jerk and just say, ah, they're outside. Even in our spirits, it's not really a cognitive thought, but it's more of just like a position of my soul, my heart towards them. Even in those moments, we are flat out wrong and opposing God when we think that they're outside the boundaries of his care and faithfulness. No one deserves God's mercy. People everywhere have fallen short of the glory of God. This is what the scriptures teach us. We have fallen short of his standards. And Romans says, no one is good, no, not one. Nobody in the world is good, no, not one. Who wrote Romans? A guy named Saul. Hebrew named Saul, Greek named Paul. The apostle. Here's what Paul was doing in verse 1 when Jesus saved him. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That was Paul's intent in that moment when Jesus reached in and knocked him off his donkey. Off his little high horse. Does that guy deserve mercy or judgment in that moment? Answer honestly. Judgment. But the gospel says we get what we don't deserve. The gospel says we get mercy. Who in our day fits this this category for you? Who in your neighborhood fits this category for you? Who in your workplace fits this category for you? Outside of the mercy of God. Who in your political understanding fits this category for you? I was thinking about it this week, just asking the question, maybe there's a thousand, maybe there's 10,000, maybe there's a hundred thousand, maybe there's a million Future disciples among our current enemies. Not just the people who are kind of nominal to Jesus, but the people who are opposed to his kingdom. 
Maybe there's a million of them out there. The Bible is constantly holding up this reality that God saves sinners. That's the name of Jesus for Pete's sake. God saves. That's Jesus' name. That's what it means. We just walked through uh, the book of Daniel. God's working with Nebuchadnezzar. This brutalizing Babylonian king who in chapter 4 seems to come to some kind of a knowledge of the holy. He's working with the Ninevites. He sends this kind of bipolar guy, Jonah, to the Ninevites who's like, all right, uh, first I don't want to go, fine, I'll go. God grants 100,000 of these Ninevites uh, repentance. They come to know the real Jesus And then Jonah gets mad about it. Nicodemus, this disciple of the... He's a a Pharisee, but he's kind of a disciple of Jesus by night. The Pharisees are opposing Jesus, deciding to destroy Jesus, eventually cry out for his crucifixion. But Nicodemus is slipping in under the cover of darkness saying, Hey, teacher, tell me some things. I'm curious. Paul turns apostle. We've got to keep our grip on our belief that no one is beyond the love and the life-changing power of Jesus Christ, and we've got to go after them. As ambassadors, given the message of reconciliation. Every single disciple of Jesus has been given a mission by the King of Kings, saying, go, make disciples. Third observation. Disciples multiply because ordinary disciples obey Jesus even though they're afraid. Disciples multiply because ordinary disciples obey Jesus even though they're afraid. We've we've got names of people in the Bible who God uses mightily to bring about his plan. But one thing that, that can be pretty easy actually in the book of Acts to miss is how many disciples' names we don't have. I tried to find a count of uh, disciples who were named in the New Testament this week, and the internet did not help me at all. My estimate, I reached out to professor, I reached out to other people, nobody actually had cataloged these things or had easy access to somebody who had. But my estimate in the New Testament of the number of people whose actual names were mentioned in, in the New Testament is somewhere between 60 and 100. It's an educated guess. In Acts chapter 1, though, we're told that there are 120 disciples. But in Acts chapter 2, all of a sudden, God brings that number up to 3,000 disciples. In Acts chapter 4 or 5, that number is brought up to 5,000 men. So we've got women and we've got children. So let's just say at least 10,000. Some of these people were probably really extraordinary, even the ones who aren't mentioned. But I think every, most everybody in this number of 10,000 or so in the first year of the church were probably pretty ordinary people, everyday saints who are just trying to keep in step with the Spirit. Lord Jesus, what do you have for me today? Lord Jesus, what do you have for me today? Lord Jesus, what do you have for me today? One of these disciples was used in an extraordinary way. In Acts chapter 22, verse 12, Paul tells the account of his conversion again, and he describes this guy who he encountered, Ananias, as devout and well-respected in his community. 
That's all we really know about Ananias. And Ananias is the one who, who baptized the Apostle Paul. He's the one who got to baptize the Apostle Paul. We, we actually know something else in Acts chapter 9 about Ananias. Is one thing that he had was serious reservations. Serious reservations about the Apostle Paul. He's devout. Um, God tells, uh, tells Ananias that, that he'll... Like, so Ananias is probably in this moment praying. He's a devout man. This direct message comes straight from the Spirit of God, straight from Jesus to him, pings his brain and says, hey, there's something I want you to do. Go and pray for Paul of Tarsus. And Ananias' answer we read about in, in verse 13. Lord, I've heard from many about this guy. His reputation precedes him. How much evil has he done to your saints who are in Jerusalem? And here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priests to bind, that is to arrest all who call on your name. We know that it was men and women without discrimination. Paul is just coming for followers of the way. But the Lord Jesus answers Ananias and he says, go, go to him, find him. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, Jews, Gentiles, people in high positions. And Jesus says to Ananias, I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He's got his work cut out for him, but I've chosen him. So Ananias departed and entered the house on the street called Straight. Ananias was probably in this position, you know what a double bind is? He's in a double bind. You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Like either way you go, it's not going to work. Like neither option is preferable. It's obey your Lord and possibly die or obey your fear and possibly live, but disrespect and disregard the one who has authority over your life. When you start to put it in those terms, you can feel the, t- the scales tip. But you know in the moment when the Spirit is asking you to do something wild and crazy, just how much fear you have internally. You're like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to talk to them. I'm not going to start that conversation. They'll think I'm weird. They'll tell people about it. Everybody will laugh at me in this moment if I do that, if I say that, if I go here. Or if I give something to them that you're asking me to give to them, I'll be broke or I won't have it anymore. We, we come up with all of the different discomforts. These situations feel like double binds. We want to honor Jesus, but also it's going to be uncomfortable. It is so, so, so easy to doubt God's instructions. Is it not? If you've been following him for any amount of time, like how easy it is to disregard the speaking God in your life, what he's asking us to do. If I'm honest, the, the way the Spirit often directs me in, in within, in these kind of just weird moments where I have that download, it feels dangerous. It feels risky. If it's, all, it's regularly, maybe not always, but it's regularly pushing the envelope of what I'm comfortable with. Keeping, step, keeping in step with the Spirit often creates this kind of dissonance, this kind of like doubt in my soul. I was thinking about it this morning as I was walking through this, and I remember looking out my office window. I used to office at the Chamber of Commerce, and my office window looked out at the freeway, I-90. And I remember watching this guy walk through the parking lot of the Chamber of Commerce, and he like hopped the little barrier, and he started walking up the hillside toward the freeway. I figured he was a hitchhiker or something. He didn't, he didn't look all that great. Um, and I remember, I remember thinking to myself, 
or, or the Spirit saying to me, I think it was God speaking to me in this moment, grab your lunch and run it out there and give it to him and just see how he's doing. And I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And, I'm, and I, now I'm telling you about it a year and a half, two years later. How many of those times do we have in our own story where we sense the Spirit of God speaking to us and we don't go? Now, He is sovereign. If God is aiming at that man who is walking along the freeway, He's going to have him. He's part of the kingdom. He's coming. But I missed it. I missed the blessing of obedience. I missed the opportunity. And He may have rejected me full sail. I don't know. But I sensed for real that that's what the Spirit was saying to me. So I often feel this sense of like danger and dissonance in my own soul, and it confounds me. But the Scriptures teach that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. The Scriptures teach that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is comfort. The gospel of Jesus brings intense comfort in the midst of our deep and our deadly fears. It's just a reality. The gospel of Jesus brings comfort in the midst of our deep and deadly fears. And your and my obedience to Jesus matters, even if you cannot see how it will build the church. Even if we can't see it, in our myopic view, Jesus will build up his church through our obedience to him. Here's my fourth observation. Disciples multiply through the bold proclamation of the gospel. Disciples multiply through the bold proclamation of the gospel. This is one of the things you see over and over and over as you survey the book of Acts. Paul's first public move was to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue of Damascus. This is his first move. He gets his eyes back, and he goes and starts preaching the gospel to Jews in the synagogue, the place where these disciples of these members of the way would be most boldly opposed. It's not a coincidence that conversion comes through communication of God's word, of the gospel. How are they to believe if someone doesn't tell them. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of the Lord. How good it is when, like how beautiful are the feet of those who bring us good news. Communication of the objective reality of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, ascension, and coming return. It is essential. But conversion always comes through communication. And that conversion, that, that conversion, when it comes home to us, when the communication comes home to us, often leads us to out into communication. A, a new communicating the gospel. Um, a common experience of new Christ followers, new disciples, is the urge to share the good news of Jesus. It like, you don't even have to necessarily be taught this. I think it's good. I think we should teach this. We should disciple one another in this way. But when the reality of King Jesus comes home to your life, the first thing that you want to begin doing, knee-jerk, is you start to think about other people who need to get in on this goodness. It's like we have this voice leading us from the inside. Saying, hey, other people, other people. And not only this, not only do we want to typically proclaim it, but disciples of Jesus are given this newfound hunger to uh, continually hear the voice of God too. Like This is a reality in a follower of Jesus' life is that we begin to hunger for God's word. We begin to hunger to hear from him, to be instructed by him. We don't gather around the preaching of God's word on Sundays because it's simply our tradition. 
It is a tradition that we have been handed down from the apostles, but we don't gather just because it's what they've always done behind us. We do this because God has placed his spirit within us who makes us, who makes you and I like parched animals for the living water of the life-giving word of the real Jesus. We need God's word. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God used Paul to spearhead the planting of churches throughout the known world. And the way that Paul did this was through the proclamation of the gospel. He preached the gospel. We see this all over Acts as you survey it. The gospel is proclaimed, people come to faith, and then they're organized into communities. And those communities become churches. They're little, like, non-impressive churches. Philippians, the church in Thessalonica, the Corinthians, the Galatians, the Ephesians. Paul had a, he, he experienced a great deal of joy and blessing from these churches. And the reward was incredible for him, but so was the cost for Paul. Because the one who was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the way is now having threats and murder breathed against him. The hunter has become the hunted. Paul had this encounter with the real Jesus on the road to Damascus that changed everything for him. He'd been healed by him. He lost his sight in that moment, and Ananias comes and lays his hands on Paul, and Paul regains his sight. Paul goes and begins to preach the gospel, but he was also healed of his self-sufficiency and his self-righteousness. He was transformed by the grace of Jesus. That's the reality of what Paul experienced. And now Paul is risking his own skin to tell others about the grace available to anybody through Jesus Christ. The proclamation of the gospel matters. And we have got to do everything in our power to hold this proclamation of the gospel tightly in closed hands. We will not give this up. This cannot change. We cannot, you guys, look at me. We cannot be satisfied by some mere teachings on how to organize your life in a better way. Or 10 steps to have a better marriage. Or five steps to do this or this or this. Those things are great. The practicals help. But what we most need as the people of God is the gospel to be proclaimed regularly over and over. The power of the real Jesus to transform us from the inside out to our own hearts and then from our own mouths. This is what we most need as the people of God. My fifth observation is this. Disciples multiply because Jesus still heals. Jesus heals. We see this account where Peter enters the scene really abruptly, kind of out of nowhere. It says, the text says in verse 35, I think, that he is, or 32 maybe, that he is um, going here and there among them all. What Peter is doing is he's, he's working his way throughout the churches, just strengthening them, teaching them, ministering to them, praying for them. And he comes to this town called Lydda, which is about 12 miles from Jerusalem. And the Lord Jesus, what we hear in this text is that the Lord Jesus heals Aeneas through Peter's attention. Notice who Luke gives the credit to. He, this guy has been bedridden for eight years. He's paralyzed. And Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. He didn't say, I heal you. He says, Jesus Christ heals you. 
And immediately this guy gets up. The people, the residents of these towns, these are small village-like communities. They knew this guy. They knew of him. They knew people who knew him. Jesus healed him through Peter, and then as a result of this healing, people turned to the Lord. Jesus is at work in this community, in this man's life, in this village, healing people. He still heals. He still heals. When something incredible happens to you, what do you do? Let's share it, like right out of the gates. When something happens, Incredible, you want, there's this like compulsion in us to share that news, whether it's good or bad. We tell people. Since Lydda is actually near Joppa, and, the, and Lydda is next to this town called Sharon, they start talking about stuff, and then the, it, it like moves through the grapevine to Joppa. People hear what Jesus did to Aeneas through Peter, and then they're like, hey, one of our own, this disciple who was charitable, who was well-known among us. It seems like she died before the time. Her name was Tabitha in the Hebrew or Dorcas in Greek. She seems to have met an untimely death. Send for Peter and let's see if he'll lay his hands on her because we have heard that people have come back from the dead. They're really grieving. These disciples legitimately believed that she could live again. And she was really dead. Look at verse 40. Peter said to the body. Peter said to her body, Tabitha, rise, get up. Text tells us that her eyes were opened and she sat up. And then he takes her outside and people start talking. People start rejoicing. People start telling other people. What was the result of Aeneas' healing in verse 35? the people of these nearby towns turned to the Lord. What was the result of Tabitha's? It became known in verse 42, and many believed in the Lord. Who is the Lord? It's Jesus. The same Jesus who spoke to Paul and turned his life around. Now heals a man who has been bedridden for eight years and then wakes another woman up from the dead because Jesus was working right there in those moments. Disciples in our day often want to see miraculous stuff like this. Do you not? You do, don't you? We want to see stuff like this. Maybe some of us have seen healing like this. I have not, and I want to. I want to. I believe that Jesus of Nazareth still heals people physically. And what I want us to be aware of and to keep in mind also is let's not also discount other things that are miracles, other healings that Jesus does that are miraculous. Jared was headed for jail. And now he's talking to you about Jesus. There are a number of people in this room who were destroying your lives, destroying your marriages, hurting and harming and using the people around you. And Jesus has now rescued you out of those old lives. Every disciple, every single one of us has this legit story of what Jesus has done for us, rescued from self-righteousness. Change the language. Healed from self-righteousness. Healed from death. Maybe healed in a hospital room. Some of you may have this story. Healed from cancer. Healed from crippling anxiety. Healed from depression. Healed from drug use and addiction. Healed from abuse. 
healed from works-based righteousness. The list goes on and on, and not just in this room, but the entire world out there, and out there, and out there, and out here. Here's the last point, which is really a summary of everything. Disciples multiply because Jesus is working in his world. He's always on the move. Disciples multiply because Jesus rescues the unlikely ones. Disciples multiply because Jesus sends and commissions and uses and loves fearful disciples. Disciples multiply because the gospel of Jesus is preached. Because Jesus heals still. And disciples of Jesus talk about what Jesus is doing among them. Here's where I'll end. Tabitha's resurrection became known throughout Joppa and many believed. People talked about Aeneas' healing and residents of two different towns, they turned to the Lord. Listen, look at this in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, multiplied. The church grew. What came right before that in verse 30 was that people were plotting to take the Apostle Paul's life and they had to get him out of there ASAP. Evacuate, evacuate, evacuate. So what does it mean that the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up? It means they had peace with God and peace with one another and unity among them and a commission to live in the world. And as they walked in the fear of the Lord, not in the fear of man, and and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, not in their own conveniences, the church of Jesus Christ If you want to grow something to last a season, plant flowers. If you want to grow something to last a lifetime, plant a tree. If you want to grow something to last throughout all of eternity, plant the gospel. Make disciples, and churches will be planted. So here's the question for you. How will you engage Jesus in discipleship, in disciple-making, in church planting, in church multiplication? I want to just land very quickly here, but here's application. In the Strong Church Guide, uh, at the very back on pages 28 and 29, reach one, two, three. Who is one person in your world? Who is your one? What does it look like for you to invite two of your people, fellow believers, to pray for them, to contend with you for them, to ask Jesus for them? What does it look like for you to include two people who are praying for your one? And then what does it look like for you to... Think through three invites at a minimum into spiritual conversation. What does it look like for you to engage them? What does it look like for you to serve them in the name of Christ? What does it look like for you to invite them to a gathering here or into a community group or into a a group of people that are looking at the scriptures together? What does it look like for you to invite them in? The second thing, church, I really want you to be interacting with these. We, We want this for you to plan your discipleship. Mature discipleship, where are you at in the process? Do you sense that, man, I really need some tools, so I need to lean in and I need to ask someone to invest in me? Who is that person? Who is in your world? I could help give you some ideas, but I'm sure that God has placed people in your path. Or maybe I'm ready. I need to. It's going to be imperfect. It's going to be messy, but I know some people. They're on my list. They're on my heart. They're on my mind. I want to go and invite them into some discipleship opportunities to just open the scriptures together, discover who God is, what he's done in his world, who I am in Christ, and what I do as a result. And then last, 
multiplication. What does it look like for you to be involved in church planting? Giving to church plants, going. What does it look like for us to think about multiplication as a church community, to think about investing in church planting? Let me pray for us. Father, would you apply this to us? Would you help us to see the glory of Jesus and how Jesus is working? Would you help us to hunger after your word, to be attentive to your spirit, to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength? God, we need you. We are weak and feeble on our own. With man, these things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. So use us. We surrender. In Jesus' name, amen.